Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm with Audrey Waters again this week. Today is the 13th of January, 2012, and we're looking at the week in EdTech news. Audrey, this is such a delightful hour for me every week. I know. I always look forward to it. Last night, I was as I was rev- going through all of the, the news that happened this week, it's always like, oh, I can't wait to get to talk to Steve about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we actually have some followers. Have you noticed? I know. We have. It's great. And we, we received our first invitation to speak together at a conference. Yes, we'll be that's at the very Sloan. exciting. Yes. We'll be at the Sloan Merlot Conference in July, late July in Las Vegas. Uh, that was very fun. Um, I will tell you, I kept laughing this week. The I Made a Math app kept <laughs> me going all week long. <laughs> oh, that's great. Good. <laughs> It was a lot of fun, uh, and I've shown it to several people. <laughs> hey, um, we've also started at Incubator. We have, which is very exciting, I think. It's very exciting. This is a chance for small startups uh, and educational companies to get an authentic audience with educators, and we are hoping it's a real contribution on our side to to helping those organizations and companies. Our first project is with uh, PBS NewsHour. And if you go to edincubator.com, you can find the information there, and it clicks you to a link for a group on Classroom 2.0, where you can join to help uh, NewsHour uh, with their uh, student journalism efforts. Yeah, this is one of the things I think that, I mean, for me, you know, for me personally, helping bridge this gap between um, educators and um, um, education companies, entrepreneurs, um, that I think that sometimes we, we we operate in these different circles and i and i love this idea of us you know providing the space for people to actually um to, to actually talk so that we're building you know we're actually building solutions to people's problems yeah i, I think we're both very excited about it and we have some other fun projects i think that will come that are coming up soon and, and we'll keep you all informed okay so um uh, you did a long video interview this past week. I did. Or at least it was posted. I did, yes. yes. Do we need to be moving to video? Are we in the old school here? You know, I, I have to think that video is um, is going to be a pretty big thing. And it's funny because, I mean, you know, you and I have only been doing this podcast for a short time now, so we're, we're sort of late on the podcast train. But I do think video is becoming increasingly important. I think that... Um, and whether people are, are sort of watching it or just listening to it as they would perhaps a podcast, um, I, I think it is going to be a, a very, very important trend uh, for teaching and learning, too, not just for our, <laughs> for our platform. <laughs> I have a I have a mixed relationship with video. I do really enjoy it. I find that I listen to things more often than I watch the video. Me too. Uh, I sometimes will even convert video to audio. And part of my biggest problem is where do I store it and how do I easily access it? Well, and I think you know, t- thinking back to last week, our conversation about the the predictions for this year, I think that you know, I think that that our increase, all of us, our increased usage of uh, video is creating bandwidth issues, and I'm not sure that schools and libraries in particular are equipped yet to both be the you know the creators, the uploaders, the the you know storing, downloading, watching, streaming. Um, I think we're going to be running into some bandwidth problems, but I but I do think that but I do think the video is is uh, is exciting. Was there anything that came up in that interview? That, uh, that you and I didn't discuss or that was new to you as you went through that process? Um, I don't think so. Um, no, I don't think so. I think It was an hour. I chose not to watch it. 
<laughs> no, I know. I was exhausted too. I was like, and I think I even wore out Seth, who's usually a very high energy host, and he was like, "Oh my god, I'm exhausted." So <laughs> an hour is just too long. You and I are really good about keeping to 55 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, I want to talk about OLPC. And uh, but before I do so, I'm kind of intrigued by the degree to which it feels as though the the world of the internet or Web 2.0 has changed how things happen. Um, meaning, a lot of the companies in the Web 2.0 world have served as sort of canaries in the coal mine of having to be really responsive to user demands mm-hmm. and doing maybe a lot less leading and a little bit more following to understand trends. And my core question about OLPC is. Have they done a good job following or in their desire to lead, have they ended up kind of being out in the wilderness alone? I, I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's actually a very uh, important question. And I say this partially because, you know, I think the vision, you know, Nicholas Negroponte's vision here is, is a wonderful one and an important one. Putting a, putting a computing device into the hands of children everywhere. Um, uh, but, you know, sort of as the time it's taken for, um, OLPC to, to to build this right device, and and they've they've done so very carefully, right, in terms of the the components and the cost and the durability um, and the low power consumption. Um, so as they've slowly ma- designed and manufactured these devices, the the mobile revolution is sort of already happening in the parts of the developing world um, with the cell phone. And so it's interesting to you know, in some ways, it feels as though the caution and the the, or the deliberation, I should say, that um, the speed at which the project has moved has actually been sort of leapfrogged now by by the cell phone. And and I mean, I, I think that the argument would be, well, you know, you can you do different things with a cell phone than you can do with with these with these um, laptops and now tablets. But I'm 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 not so sure if if that's necessarily such a, such a such a gap. Well, I think it was particularly evident in this OLPC XO 3.0 mm-hmm. because it's it's as though they're coming to the back to the tablet or to to the to the what has been the commercial solution. And you give a staggering figure of eighty percent of somebody's the mm-hmm. world has cell phones. Yes, and all of a sudden we have uh, now the OLPC, you know, becoming one of the flavors being an Android tablet. The other, I guess, being uh, Linux. Linux, and yeah. I don't know if that's is that is that the same software they were running on the previous machines, or yeah, is it a new I, version? I think it's a new. Um, it's it's Sugar Sync, and I'm not sure if that's the same version or not. I think it is new software for the tablet because of the touchscreen. Yeah, there was a little bit of sadness for me in this story, which is, you know, building a an Android tablet. You see so many. There seems to be so much momentum now for those tablet devices and it would be so hard to compete with what are going to be lowering prices and the difficulty of selling a substandard tablet with lower functionality or worse performance at a lower price as we've seen right. you know out of India so you know if this if the commercial market can produce a device that 80% of some population uses mm-hmm. are we more likely to see the tablet get adopted from traditional commercial market techniques rather than something as noble as OLPC. Right. And I think too, you know, I think that the 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 other piece of this I think is 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 has changed is the fact that this is still 
going to be a government, you know, the, this is a government implementation, technology implementation. So OLPC still says that they're not planning on any sort of mainstream public consumer market release for these devices. These are still going to be sold to governments who will then distribute them in turn. And again, it, it feels as though that's a very different, um, that's a very different um, way to distribute uh to distribute these technology than just the explosion of the consumer, the consumer device, which I mean, which has become ubiquitous. I mean, even you know, even in the poorest right. parts of the world, um, it's sort of people aren't waiting to get their government issued mobile computing device. They've done it. They've 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 prioritized it themselves. And we've we've talked about this so many times before. Just this model of do you build a, a software program or a service that answers very human needs that gets brought into education, mm -hmm. or do you build something for education? And, and again, I keep feeling as though it's the thing that answers the human need that gets brought into education. And for me, the huge contrast here was the discussion about how the the power of this device is a reading device. Mm -hmm. And I thought. Why not just send a Kindle? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, a seventy-nine dollar Kindle, which probably costs. Yeah, and I think and and had would would likely. I mean, this is one of the problems that the uh, that those thirty-five dollar um, Akash tablets have out of India is that the battery life just doesn't last. And even if you have a hand crank um, or or a solar, t you know, a solar device, the for those of you who own own the Kindle. You know that the I mean the the battery really really lasts a long 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 time with those and and I think that you know the the I think that it's that is a, a good reading device. I, I want to be really careful not to knock noble people noble aspirations and a lot of hard work. <laughs> yes, but it is an intriguing story. Well, and I and I think I mean I'm I'm going to be very interested to I mean to see sort of. What what comes of it? Because the the OLPC has had its share of hiccups before. It's sort of it struggled to get um, some of these devices out the door. There have been delays. There have been you know the the cost hasn't always been quite quite right. And so you know is is this the is this the the device that that you know a lot of people have been hopeful for? I'm I'm not I'm not sure. Fascinating. Can't wait to hear more. Search Plus. Yes. Is this is this really the biggest change in a decade? This I, is, I had a little trouble with that. This is a pretty big. This is a. I think this is a really big deal for Google. Um, what Google announced this week was that it was going to start um, including what it's called Search Plus Your World. And so, um, in addition to sort of the ten blue links that Google has always given you for a search return, they're going to now start offering you quote personalized results. And those are based on your Google Plus network, um, and so it's Google says, of course, that this is, um, I mean, that this is going to be making sure that you're getting social, socially relevant um, answers to your search queries. Um, and there have been all sorts of controversies this week whether or not this is some sort of, um, uh, should the FTC look into this, um, and is this going to sort of ruin the way in which we have trusted Google for a long time to give us the best results, um, quote, best results, um, and not ones that are sort of predisposed to link back to Google's own platform. Um, I think it is, this is a very big change to the sort of algorithmic uh, approach to search that Google was founded on. Um, and I think it had some strange implications, particularly for schools, where 
currently students don't, uh, you know, anyone under 18 doesn't have a Google Plus account. I, I, I have mixed feelings. I don't want Google to to rank and prioritize based on what they know about me without my controlling it. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, I go to my friends for advice. So, right. of course, searching within my own networks makes a lot of sense. So, I come to the conclusion, I think much like you do, which is search, social search isn't going to go away. So, we have to teach people how to use it well. Right. And, and Google and Microsoft and anybody else doing search has to make sure that they're doing their part well. I think that that I mean I think that the search the search literacy and I think you have talked about this before search literacy is really important and I think that Google's just added I mean I think Google actually should do should maybe think about doing a, a little bit better job. I know they've tried they have a search a, a puzzle a day um, that they are trying to teach people how to be um, how to use search better. But I think that adding the social component now adds another layer of complexity and again because because students won't be able to utilize that in the classroom um, in, in most school settings, um, I think it's it's going to be a strange op it's a it's a sort of a missed opportunity to teach um, if for nothing else teach a student um, the importance of cultivating and cultivating your social network so that you have quote good you know good advice for from people and that's you know it's not sort of just which movie should I go see on a Friday night but if you have people in your social circles that are um, I don't know, quantum physicists, um, and you do a Google search, it would make sense that, you, that you'd like to be, you know, you'd like to have those, the things that those, that those people have read and shared, um, those should, there should be some way of indicating, you know, that the quantum physicists in your social circles like a certain uh, item. So when I do a search now at Google on mm -hmm. my Chrome browser on my laptop, um, I get a little bar at the top that says X number of personal results. Yes. And then some number, it's grayed, of other results. So I'm assuming that my personal results are very personal, and when I click on the other results, they're completely objective. But Whatever that I, they means. don't seem objective. <laughs> I, I actually have wondered, now, do I still need to go down to the more search tools here to actually get fully objective? And have they missed, is, you know, if you search Hargadon, under Google, mm -hmm. are your first, um, you know, six listings Steve Hargadon with photos from Steve Hargadon? I can't imagine they are. Um, well, when I search it right now and I click on the personal search results, yes, I get your photos. I get. Oh, I get. No, but get, click on the click on the non-personal. Oh, on the all results. Okay. Um, no, there's the first three. The first three are you, and there's actually a little a little picture, a little image that suggests, I guess, that that we're connected in the social circle. But then I get, well, no, actually, these are all you. <laughs> I get Andrew well, Hardon eventually. Okay, but I don't think you're getting the same results as me. And, no, and my think. argument would be, Google needs to do this better. If you tell me you're going to do personal results and then other results, mm -hmm. then those other results really have to be other results. Yeah. But if I've read this correctly, and I and I and I hope I have. I'm, not that I hope that I'm correct, but I think I hope that I'm stating it correctly. Um, those other results aren't still aren't fully objective. Yeah, and I think well, I mean, and I think again, this sort of goes back to thinking through what is, um, you know, how does Google work anyway, right? Google, you know, Google's algorithm is is privileging links, um, 
and I mean lots of lots of other information um, goes into uh, it goes into the Google algorithm, but it's 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 definitely weighted upon sort of inbound links, outgoing links, um, how much um, sort of how many how many signals does a particular site or web page give off that make that make it think that it's the right information? So there is there's still this question of sort of how do you how does Google choose the the best most relevant answer? All already because it's not it's not necessarily the best answer it's just the one that its algorithm has surfaced as the most relevant um, and I'm I'm not sure that I'm not sure that the social that the social search yet um, is is quite right although I think I mean I think it could be interesting I mean for me you know in on Google Plus I've I don't I haven't circled that many people I've been very careful about who have circled and it's been primarily educators or people involved um, in education technology um, and journalists. And so in some ways, I, I like this, my, the personal results that it's giving me because I tend to do searches about education technology and it tends to surface the things that my people in my social circle, my Google circles have, um, have shared. But I think that, I mean, I think it's still this question of like, is that still, is that the most relevant, is that still relevant? I don't know. Well, I just went to, so I did the search under Hargadon. I got the personal results and then the other results. Mm -hmm. I clicked on the other results and they didn't feel like they were fully objective. So I went down to the 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 more tools. Mm -hmm. I think it's more tools. And then I had to click way down on something called verbatim. Yes. To actually get the objective search. So my contention would be, yes, we have to be teaching search literacy. Right. And we don't want to avoid social search. But... I don't think Google's been fair here. I, I I don't think that what they're calling all results is actually objective, and that's going to make it even harder to teach. Right. I mean, and you know, after all, even um, you know, Google is always Google is always limiting your your searches to your la language and your location, and so you're going to have you. It's going to return English only, or typically, unless you make a search in a foreign language, it's going to return English-only results, and it's going to prioritize information that's nearby you. Um, and so I think that the all results, you know, I mean, and you can still turn those, you can still turn that personalization off as well. But yeah, I mean, the, the information that Google presents isn't somehow objective or unbiased ever. So I'm a Google fanboy. Let's make it clear. <laughs> I know, Anybody me too. from Google who's listening, <laughs> please don't mistake my appreciation. Same with Nicholas Negoponte. You know, again, great appreciation for the tremendous work being done. But uh, this feels to me like uh, it's still a little bit of uh, effort could be made here. Yeah, and I'm, However, and I'm not it, sure. I'm not sure that. I mean, I know a lot of people are sort of. Um, you know, standing outside with the pitchforks, you know, calling in the FTC to look at Google. And I'm not sure that that, I mean, I think that there's, there are some power plays going on right now in the tech world with Facebook and, and Google and Twitter in particular, um, that I think are all, there's all sort of this sort of, these sort of machinations. But I think the important question is sort of what is the future of search look like and, and who do we trust? And if we can't trust Google, because I mean, I've, I've, I've long trusted Google, um, to, as a search engine, sort of what what then, right? I mean, right. Yeah, the important issues worth yeah. bringing up, and it leads really well to your next story, which was: should all college majors, not just computer science, learn to code? 
Yeah. And I don't think you really mean necessarily coding in the same way that you, I don't need to learn to take apart a carburetor. Right. But what I think you're communicating is this is becoming such an important part of our lives. We need to have some fluency or literacy around the core driving um, principles or, or objects that, that make such a difference in our lives. Yeah, I think so. Uh, this was this was actually a very funny. This was sort of a funny uh, story, uh, for other reasons that actually go got back to Google as well. Because I, in some ways, I felt as though this was sort of a no brainer. Like, yes, we definitely need to make sure that we're we're definitely raising the the literacy, the the, the technical literacy of all students. And I, um, and I think, and I. Uh, I uh, I sort of framed it as uh, you know should should CS should some sort of CS class be a, requ- a graduation requirement, and I didn't expect that much pushback. And on I didn't get you know there were most of the tweets I saw were positive, but when I shared the link on Google Plus, there's actually a a bunch of really horrified, um, mostly IT professionals who were insisted it was the most ridiculous idea they'd ever heard of, and that that we should not be teaching programming and we should not be diluting the field by teaching, uh, by teaching everyone, giving everyone more technology skills. And it was a bad idea. And we should save medicine for the doctors and programming for the professionals. And I thought, wow, I was That's shocked. very interesting. Well, you know, it, it, I don't want to dive too deeply here, but it does go directly to the sort of question of what is education for. Mm-hmm. And we like to think of education in very noble terms, that it liberates us, that it gives us intellectual capacity to question and to think about things in a, at a very deep thought level. But the truth of most education is that it really doesn't do those things, that it helps us to conform to sort of traditional ways that things are done in our society. And I think the reaction you got is that pushback. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, it was, it was interesting thinking because, you know, the, the sense, a lot of it was too, like, how dare you sort of, um, demand that, that college students take certain classes. And I thought, well, we, we, (laughs) we demand that all the time. I mean, we make all sorts of requirements for, or most, most universities do have, you know, requirements that you take certain classes, um, in order to graduate. So it was a very, it was very funny to see the response on Twitter where I should say most of my followers are probably teachers or technologists versus my followers on Google Plus who uh, think differently, I think. (laughs) Interesting. Well, I I wasn't sure it needed to be a requirement, but I will say that for me, my uh, understanding of search to the degree that I do, I feel that I have some skills there, and my understanding of HTML in very practical ways really benefit me. So that was sort of the message for me, which is these are actually very tangible skills, and they really make a difference right now. So whether or not uh, you want to make an argument that everybody should take it, certainly I think you can make the personal argument that your own children really would benefit from having these skills. Yeah, I mean, and another one of the pushbacks that I got um, on on Google Plus was that there are so many, there are so many sort of. Um, easy tools now that, that make it possible for people to accomplish what they want to without knowing any HTML, for example. So you can use, you can use a blogging tool like Blogger or WordPress, um, and you'll never have to sort of look at the source code and worry at all about HTML. Um, and I, I would push back on that and say that, you know, knowing, knowing HTML seems like um, 
I think that that's a, it should, it's a it's required skill. I think it is. Okay, so uh, this Google Science Fair online sounds like about just the coolest thing I've ever heard of. I, I mean, is it as great as you've portrayed it? I think that I really love I love the fact that Google. Uh, see, we listen to that Google. I love the fact that Google is. <laughs> and this, you know, I think it's important to remember um, that. Google is very much a, a company based on this notion of scientific experimentation. I mean, there's not this notion that you could that you could build a search engine that could somehow um, make index, uh, make the world's information indexable and searchable. That's that was a scientific, you know, that was the hypothesis that um, that the found that the Google founders had, and and it's it's great to see them continuing to promote to promote scientific inquiry um in kids plus they're offering really really uh phenomenal prizes so well so read the read the post a lot of fun just sounds like a brilliant program yeah i think it's okay, one, so one I, thing to add to it that i think is important um is i think it's interesting to take a science fair and put it online um i think that the that there's something about I'm really interested in things that we can do to sort of lower the barrier to entry uh, for for people participating in uh, STEM activities, particularly young girls. And I have to wonder if there's something about doing a science fair online where you're, an, you're not anonymous, but you're, you're a lot more anonymous than you would be standing in your school cafeteria or school gymnasium. So I, I, I love the idea of taking it online, too. Sorry, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> No, I loved it, and it actually kind of connects with this treehouse coding competition mm -hmm. you talked about. I mean, it uh, it's almost like the reality TV cooking competitions. You know, there's something about the fact that 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 these are relatively normal people that you see competing. Yes. And and my sense is that it gives the rest of us confidence. Hey, we actually could do that. We're see we're we see how progress is made. It feels a little bit more transparent and a little less like just the elite few right. who are really talented. And I love that. I love that. What I, and again, this is my reality TV soapbox. <laughs> I, don't, I don't love reality TV, but I love reality TV competitions, mm -hmm. like the cooking ones, because they say to me, we're beginning to make it transparent how people actually develop talent and the time and energy and work. And that's a really good thing from yeah. my perspective. Yeah. Okay, well, that was a soapbox, wasn't it? Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, I know there's a different ending to the story than when I started uh, <laughs> making notes, but uh, you didn't think you were going to get an invitation to the Apple event. And so, of course, you posted a snarky post, <laughs> right, which would increase your um, likelihood of getting invitation. But now that I'm thinking, okay, the, this didn't actually get posted yet. No. Well, right? that's, that's right. Um, the, so as, as I think we indicated last week, Google – or Google. Yeah, I'm stuck on Google now. Apple <laughs> – Apple is, has an event, a press event, on Thursday in New York, and I um, happen to be um, in New York next week, and I, uh, I tried to get a press pass, and Google, or gosh, I'm stuck on Google. Apple is, <laughs> Google, Google, responds, Google responds to my emails. Apple does not. And so I thought, well, they're never going to let me in. Um, and I, uh, through Inside Higher Ed, uh, got the correct um, email address of where to request a press pass, and they still didn't answer. And so me, in my typical calm manner, <laughs> thought, well, I'll just write something terribly snarky and awful about 
Apple's plans for, for textbooks. Um, but now it looks as though I get to be there. So <laughs> your snarky posts are my favorite. <laughs> so, uh, I, um, I'm skipping around a little bit. Uh, sometimes they're snarky and you can kind of see a smile written into them. And sometimes they're just pure deadpan irony. <laughs> so the award for this week's deadpan irony was the blackboard announcement. <laughs> I can't even do this because I'm employed by blackboard. So I really, you know, I can't go there, but do you want to read the quote that you put in that post? Do you have it handy? I don't have it handy. Oh, darn. You're going to make me read it. Oh no. Am I? Okay. So, so, uh, <laughs> This, this learning analytics solution will provide a complete view of teaching and learning, monitoring usage patterns and data in the learning environment system, LMS, along with information from the student information system. The real-time and log longitudinal data generated by the system could be used to help better engage students, measure and improve learning outcomes, and assess the adoption and use of online learning tools. So we're not saying anything about the quality of the product. And as a, as a Blackboard employee, I, you know, of course, I'm, you know, I don't know the product. I, I'm not going to criticize it. But I'm guessing that that's language that you don't like. Well, you know, I, this is one of the things that that's, I think we're going to see a lot of. I, I mean, I think we've indicated this before. I think the data and analytics are going to be a, um, a big, we'll see a big push for that this year. And I think in some ways it's really going to be full of marketing full of marketing spin right um the the fact that this is this is sort of in some ways feels like very much um this this feels like very like very empty rhetoric and of course for a long time now you have as a, a, if you've used blackboard you can sort of see the last time a student logged in and you you can sort of you could sort of piece together piece together sort of analytics that way but is that is that a complete view of teaching and learning um no not so much and i'm not sure what what blackboard would have to do to ever create to provide a complete view of teaching and learning but i'll go out on a limb and say it's probably not going to happen with any lms blackboard or otherwise moving right along, <laughs> moving right along. <laughs> So, okay, what I love about uh, technology is sometimes something will happen that completely takes you by surprise and, and reorganizes how you think what might happen is going to happen. And uh, I certainly have felt that way about Android phones and tablets. Um, and you, went, you had pretty much proclaimed the Chromebook dead. Yes. And yet Samsung announces some new products in this area, one of which, the Chromebox? Yes. Kind kind of blew me away. Actually, I was um, I was very surprised, and and perhaps this will be the first the first uh, 2012 prediction that I'll have to eat my words on. Although I'm sure there'll be more. But yeah, I I thought that the I mean I really hadn't seen either Google or Samsung, who's the maker of um, of the one of the makers of the Chromebook so far. I hadn't seen much from them. I hadn't heard much in terms of sales um, but it, at this at the consumer electronics show this week Samsung was clearly clearly well positioned to be a strong hardware player in the coming um, in the coming years and they've that looks like they're moving forward with several new um, several new Chromebooks that that um, ultrabooks were sort of a hot hot word out of CES this year sort of a, a thinner lighter uh, laptop and the, the Chromebooks look like they're like they're going that direction. Um, including a desktop, a, a, a desktop-ish version, which I thought was very, very interesting. 
Well, I, you know, there were net, there were manufacturers who took the netbook and actually turned it into a little standalone device. Mm-hmm. But there was something about the standalone device that's just running Chrome that somehow made sense to me. I'm very curious about it. I, I th- the first place I thought of it was the kitchen. Yeah, well, you know, one of the pro- one of the one of the problems I think that Chromebooks face um, is the fact that they do require you to be online all the time. And even though Go- I mean, I think Google's tried very hard to make some of its um, make some of its apps work offline. And thanks to HTML5, they can do that. But really, the the Chromebook doesn't work at all. Like if you're on an airplane, for example, and you don't have Wi-Fi on the plane, you can't work on your Chromebook. Um, and so I think that in some ways the it doesn't make or it makes more sense I should say to have it as a desktop or a, rather than a mobile rather than a mobile device. I love the the two screen feature of the Chrome box that mm-hmm. was mentioned in the story as well. Yes. Okay, um, WizIQ. So yes. again, with 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 the desire to be clear about um, conflict of interest. So I do work part time for Blackboard. That work is around. Um, Blackboard Collaborate, which is a competitor to WizIQ. Mm-hmm. Um, so WizIQ has a new version out. So tell me about it. So um, they've they've rolled they're rolling out a number of improvements to it, um, at, at making the video calls support uh, more people, uh, better screen sharing. They're trying to uh, simplify the way in which breakout rooms operate for for webinars. Um, so uh, WizIQ is, um, I think WizIQ is an interesting company that I don't know if it doesn't seem to get a lot of uh, attention and I'm not sure, I'm not sure why that is, but um, I know Chris Dawson that works for them and he's a good guy. Have you used the product? I've not used the product. I'll be interested. To, I, I'm, I'm going to try it. I'd love to see um, yeah. how it works. Um, okay. Language learning. I don't really know this market, but it made me wonder. Uh, I did an interview a couple of years ago with, um, I think it was University of Texas Language Learning Program. And they did this brilliant thing where they have the upper class students actually create and record the lessons for the first year students. Mm-hmm. Which, which, of course, creates a, you know, when you teach, you learn moment for the upper class students. It creates a great entree for the first year students who are seeing their friends actually walk into a cafe in Paris and speak French. Right, and giving a lesson, and it's acknowledged that the French isn't always perfect, but that the social piece has such a power to influence the desire to learn the language and the confidence mm-hmm. that it that it makes a huge difference. Has anybody tapped into this in the in the language program world? Is that is that part of the story here? I think that the the stuff that Live Mocha um, Live Mocha is a different approach to language learning than say Rosetta Stone, um, and Live Mocha definitely relies more on that peer to peer conversational language learning rather than uh, Rosetta Stone's uh, more s- systematic. Um, uh, the 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 curriculum that takes you through takes takes you through learning a language. Um, I think that you know I think that language learning, even though which, which is so funny because this, these are the programs that I mean that often get cut. Um, and this is actually why this week Live Mocha is stepping up to help um, offer scholarships to students in college or to students in colleges so they can continue to offer language learning. Of course offer language learning through Live Mocha, but um, but I think that that peer-to-peer piece is really important, and I think you can spend a lot of time learning a language 
but if you don't, if you aren't actually practicing it conversationally, it doesn't really help much. So, is there a connection here? I've been skeptical of some of what I see as gamification, although. Mm-hmm. You know, I am going to help run this gaming and education conference, but oftentimes I feel like there's there there's sort of the surface level of trying to bring gaming and education that that doesn't resonate with me. But it sure seems that gamification and language learning would go together really, really well. Is that being done? Um, when you say gamification, what are you what are you meaning? I, well, I'm thinking of the degree to which games keep attention, that they challenge you to right. the right level. They, they're scaffolded learning. They, they provide social interaction and, and, and then a very you know, structured understanding of how to get you from one place to the next. Mm-hmm. No, I think that I've, I've noticed a lot. I mean, I think that this is one of the um, interesting things with mobile devices for, um, for practicing um, games that help you practice too. There was... Um, this week, I think uh, Gary Steger responded rather um, harshly to um, to a post that Vicki Davis had in the New York Times about um, adaptive learning, and um, he was critical, I think, of these of ga- of software that sort of just wrote memorization. But frankly, when it comes to some language learning, like I think that that memorization piece is actually sort of important. Um, whether it's trying to remember, you know, just helping yourself work through the flashcards and with, with, that's not sort of how you're going to acquire a language, but it's a great way to sort of practice and brush up on your vocabulary and remembering which way the accents go, um, where accents go in your French, um, in French and stuff. Um, so I, I have seen a lot of really good mobile games, but then they're miss often those time, then those are missing the social component. So there's just sort of practice games for one person. I'm convinced that games do such a good job of tapping into the variety of ways in which we're motivated as human beings, mm-hmm. from the individual sort of um, emotional and capability standpoints, from the social in terms of people helping us, but also the sort of social pressure, and then at the sort of the highly structured level in which um, objects or structure kind of inherently drive us in certain directions. And I'm sort of fascinated by how games touch on all of those and then the degree to which if you applied those principles to learning, whether or not it's gamification, yeah, those are just really good principles of how you help motivate people. Right. I mean, and I think that, you know, I think that, that this, that, that, that there's something about, you know, pleasure and joy and the fun of gaming that I think we, you know, we, we shouldn't, even though learning is is serious, I think you know there's this playful seriousness or serious playfulness that is really important to remember mm. when it comes to really sort of um, taking charge of your own learning experiences too. Good. So two really interesting reports out from Joan Gant's Cooney Center. Yeah. Uh, one that kids prefer ebooks. <laughs> I think that this one this one is really interesting because. Um, and th- I should be clear. This is these are ebooks for their sort of um, f- for their pleasure reading. These aren't. This isn't textbooks. And I think it's important to remember that everyone seems to love reading on e-readers. Nobody seems to like digital textbooks. And that's something I think to keep in mind when Apple makes its announcement next week. So far, digital textbooks have sort of been less. They haven't really fulfilled the promise. I think. Um, but yeah, kids kids love 
kids prefer kids say in the study they prefer reading ebooks to printed books and they were also able to sort of they had the same level of reading comprehension with both which is one of these concerns that somehow if they're reading if you're reading on a screen are you really um, are you having that same experience that you would if you were holding a, a piece of paper in your hand mm -hmm. I still choose a physical book when I know I'm going to make notes in it. Because mm -hmm. I just, I can't, you know, I've just not been able to find an experience that I like online. But right. I will say that free reading books mm -hmm. and news articles, I, I not only like them as much reading them online, I actually believe I read faster. And the conclusion I've come to for myself is that I'm not tracking across long lines of text. Yeah. And, and I do even I do the best on a phone. Yeah, the, there's. I have to wonder too if there's um, there's something about the um, the you quote turn the pages uh, more often on on the phone that I don't mm. know if it makes you feel like so you're if it makes you feel as though you're reading faster or you feel as though you're accomplishing more or you really are. But I, I feel the same way. I feel as though I I plow through books um, in di in the digital format. Fascinating. Okay, the a second study was they looked at um, Apple apps. Yeah, this was and a really, what did they find? This was a really interesting study. In fact, I was just you know I've been sitting here this afternoon, sort of thinking through what my wish list would be for Apple to make on their education announcement, um, and looking through this uh, Cooney Center study uh, about that because they they found a number of interesting things. Um, one is that over 80% of, of apps, uh, of educational apps, I should say here, target, target children, and they're particularly target um, the preschool age. So there's just a wealth of, of educational content out there for really young kids, and it absolutely drops off as students get older. Um, and by the time they get to high school, there's actually very little high school level, high school appropriate educational content in the app store. Which is a great, which is an interesting opportunity, I think, um, to to think about if you're an if you're an app developer. Do you think that this is reflective of a lack of demand, or that there's some other reason that people are focusing on the younger ages? I think um, I think that partially, I think that when you're when you're providing an educational tool for a toddler, you know that you're selling it to a parent, and I think that once we went because once kids reach school age. The question of educational content, we think about what happens at school, and for better or for worse, the Apple devices really still are consumer devices, not institutional devices. And I think it's, I think it seems like a harder sell to get educational content to high schoolers because I think our minds go automatic, automatically to, well, what are they learning in school? Um, and that's as a lot of, you know, I think that that's a tougher nut to crack in terms of getting your device or getting your app in, um, adopted by schools as opposed to individuals. I think that's probably partially the, partially the reason. I wonder if there's a gaming connection here as well. Well, and I think that, I mean, I think that that's probably it too. I think that, you know, as, as a parent of a, of a, of a still a teenager, I think that the, the games, I think that the age group is probably more interested in games. I wonder if they're interested in ebooks, but not in ebook apps. And so perhaps, perhaps they're still using, you know, they're still using app content that we could deem educational, but it just doesn't fall in that education category. Right. Fascinating. Okay. So the New York Times reported on a study by some economists that great teachers matter. Uh, <laughs> yes. Looking over twenty years of data. Um, 
So I, I did find I found your short reply here very telling, which is you say, but but from that can we really can we really simply conclude that fire the teachers is the solution? Um, you, you know that that study or that your reporting of it mm-hmm. led me to ask, what makes a great teacher? And clearly, it would not be firing the bad teachers, but it would be focusing for me. It would be focusing on can we identify the behaviors of great teachers? And are we teaching that? Well, I think, th- I mean, I think, th- and the other piece I would, I would add to that is that a great teacher for me um, might not be a great teacher for you. And th- I mean, I might, you know, I might really connect with one particular teacher that I think is a great, you know, sort of a great teacher. And that, that teacher might not have, be able to, for a number of reasons, might not make the same connection with, uh, with other kids. And so I think that this is, I mean, this is a we're talking about human relationships here, and I think that in addition to just sort of have have teachers, uh, you know, effectively quote, you know, sort of instill the, the the content into their students so that they can perform well on standardized tests. Um, I think that I think that assessing sort of how human relationships work and what how they work well is is really complicated, and I'm I'm not sure that we're I think that sometimes we're we're, we're asking the wrong questions and. And as such, we're getting the wrong answers and then making questionable policy decisions based on that. Fascinating. Um, Okay. I didn't understand the story on the Boston College study on video games. It's not too much screen time, but it's too much adult control. (laughs) What does that mean? I think it means that um, this this was a study sort of responding to, which is, I mean, I think it's just been an ongoing concern um, pre-computers, of course, back to television. Uh, sort of, are we, are we letting kids watch too much TV? Are we letting kids play too many video games? Are kids spending too much time in front of, in front of uh, the computer? And this, this, this Boston, this study said no. Um, but what we need to make sure is that the time that they're spending is quality time, and that maybe we should be, we should be sort of more concerned about the ways in which um, some parents or are sort of dictating dic, uh, sort of dictating what their kids do and not letting not letting their kids sort of explore and be playful in these scenarios um, make their own decisions about what their interests are and rather just sort of restricting just being really restrictive with the screen time which makes the screen time sort of it, it, it sort of twists it into sort of is it just a reward um, is it is it not fun um, that sort of thing. So it was a it was a questioning sort of what are the motivations behind just controlling the ways in which we allow kids to interact with computers. Fascinating. Um, okay, I really like Hewlett, but <laughs> yeah. is is there a worse phrase in the English language right now than robot graders? Yeah, this 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 story both fascinates me and horrifies me, right? So the Hewlett Foundation is sponsoring um, a data science competition to find a way, if there, if there is a way for us to automate the grading of student essays. And the justification is, right, that um, clearly essays are better, a better way to gauge student, um, you know, the, what, students' understanding of material than a multiple choice test, which I firmly believe that is true. Multiple choice tests um, aren't, I don't think they're a great, uh, um, a, 
a great assessment tool. That being said, I have to wonder how, you know, whether or not standardizing the es an essay so that it can be read by um, um, a robot um, is really the most uh, creative <laughs> uh, way to, you know, way to get creative responses from students either. I hate to end on that note. I know. <laughs> no, isn't there some other piece of news that we can wrap up with? I think that the theme there really is the human relations piece. And um, so maybe, so maybe I'll end myself with the reminder of just the value of the human connection and, and how important that is. And and I can't remember if it, I brought it up in this show or in some other event I was doing. But, you know, I do see that in science fiction we have these sort of two visions of education in the future, one of which is standing in front of a screen and the screen dump. Yeah, we did talk about it. And the other is this very Socratic personal um experience and i think that we do have two different sort of we envision two different futures for how we learn mm -hmm. and, and i definitely side with the with the more human contact one yeah and i fear anytime that we have robot graders then we'll have robot teachers and soon we'll have robot education journalists and then <laughs> and then what <laughs> and where, where would the irony be where, where, <laughs> audrey you're terrific thank you for another Thanks, great Steve. week of deep education thought Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Take care. Bye.